Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, June 21st. We begin with our monthly chat with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. This time out, we take a look at the preparations the CPS is taking to keep Stampede safe and get the latest on the ongoing efforts to curb violence on both Calgary Transit and city streets. A recent survey has found that the workplace gender pay gap in Canada is slowly closing. We hear details on the research from Heather Haslam, Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada. Safe drinking water is an essential human right, but Canada's Indigenous community is still struggling to access this basic need. We discuss the issue which has impacted some Indigenous communities for decades with Melissa Mbarki, Policy Analyst and Outreach Coordinator for the Indigenous Policy Program at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Every month we have the opportunity to chat with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld and look at the issues facing the city of Calgary. Chief Newfeld with us once again. Good morning to you. Good morning, Andy. Well, let's get right into it. I know that uh, you are... 365 days a year, your operation and, and the plans in place for the CPS. And of course, each and every year, we have a 10-day festival here in the city, Stampede, 16 days away. So I'm wondering, any different preparations from uh, the CPS view when it comes to Stampede? What sorts of things do you folks focus on? Yeah, great question. I, I don't think there's too much different this year. Uh, I think probably things changed a bit during the pandemic, but we're certainly expecting, uh, you know, a, a return to pre-pandemic levels of attendance. Um, and so in effect, uh, Stampede becomes the third largest municipality in Alberta every day when people go through there. So we basically create a, an additional district, um, Andy, basically, so we can continue policing operations in the city but then actually look after, separately look after uh, Stampede for that 10 days. So again, we expect the numbers will be very strong this year, similar to pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, our folks will be out in full force, both visibly um, in in uniform and as you'd see, and actually covertly, there'll be a a covert presence too that you won't see, but uh, working with our public safety partners to make sure everybody's safe during Stampede. Chief, you mentioned the focus at Stampede Park and the, the, just the large numbers of people there. But one of the bonuses of Stampede, and I think one of the greatest things about it is it, it goes beyond the Stampede Park gates, all four corners of the city with different Stampede activities. So that must uh, present a bit of a challenge. The different parties, the different pockets, the different you know drinking holes. Yeah, for sure. You know, it presents challenges, but at the same time, presenting opportunities. We have a very strong community-based policing model here mm-hmm. in Calgary. And I think our members look forward to the fact that, you know, most of... Um, most of Stampede, you know, involves visitors coming to Calgary. It involves people becoming um, engaged in sort of the Stampede uh, mindset and that sort of thing. And most of that is positive. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, you know, yes, we do have some issues with, you know, consumption and, and there are some, there are some uh, uh, challenges that arise. But really, the opportunities are greater than the challenges. And so we've seen this movie you know, many times in the past, and I think we're, uh, we're, we're pretty well-placed to uh, address the issues. But we always do. Uh, uh, encourage people to sort of celebrate responsibly and get involved responsibly and make sure if you're going to be drinking, you're not driving and this type of thing. All right, uh, switching gears a little bit as talking about the seasonality of, of policing and we have the opportunity to speak with you again once a month. And I know around the uh, winter months, we talk about, you know, things like Operation Cold Start, keeping our cars safe and, and, and being sure your car isn't taken away nefariously. The summer... Uh, is a different season, obviously, and we're kicking off summer uh, just less than two hours from now, the new season. What crime trends do we tend to see this time of the year? What are you folks going to be looking for? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. In a in a city with four distinct seasons, we do see trends. Um, so in the summer, I typically what we look for is uh, you you'll see lots of advertisement around like the 9 p.m. routine and that type of thing. And it's really just a mindfulness around crime prevention. I think in the summertime, you know, kids are outside longer. We're outside in the yard. We leave things outside, whether it be bikes or other sorts of valuables. There's sometimes where people end up leaving their garage door open and we see, you know, crimes of opportunity there where bikes get stolen or leaving your golf clubs in your car, you know, coming uh, home uh, late from a golf game or whatever. So I think there are opportunities just to, to make sure that you're not a victim of crime by just taking that few extra seconds just to, you know, make sure your, your things are secure and just to be mindful, have one last look around about what actually um, could be a target for thieves and make sure that you sort of eliminate that. All right, uh, big picture. We, we want to talk about something that's been reoccurring, and we, we've talked about several times on this program with you, Chief, which is the safety concerns crime on the streets. I, I believe in the past a handful of days or, or a week, we've, we've seen a, an attack with a pellet gun, a car set on fire. Are we making progress when it comes to street violence and, uh, you know, further to that, uh, violence on uh, transit and security on transit? Yeah, those are a couple of sort of different issues, but I think you're absolutely right. Like some of these things... Um, are gaining significant attention in you know with the public as they should um, because they're disconcerting. You know, you sit back and think about the kids yesterday driving around down south shooting people with what turned out to be an airsoft gun, and you just kind of sit back and think, what are you thinking? Um, you know, for the people that were on the receiving end of that, like you don't know. Uh, you know, we know now in hindsight that that was an airsoft uh, uh, pistol. But at the end of the day, like if you're out on the street, I can't imagine the impact on people that are just, you know, going about their day and then something like this is happening. So pretty shocking. I think the, the numbers for sure, like if you look at the numbers in terms of the crime trends, yes, I think we're making progress. But if you look at the individual incidents that happen, some of them are just so outlandish that you can't help but think, man, like what what is going on? But I think we are seeing, you know, um, you know, since the pandemic, we've seen a decline in sort of mental health and cohesion, I think, in some in some ways in the community. And we've seen some of these uh, these crimes and some of these incidents happen where it just seems like this is bizarre. Um, so certainly, you know, those were young folks that were uh, arrested in that uh, incident. And so we'll be following up, obviously, with parents and and families trying to figure out what's what's the history of these uh, young people and what's going on mm-hmm. um, to try to see where that can be prevented. But that's pretty shocking. But the public spaces that you're talking about, uh, you know, lots of focus has gone into public spaces, transit being one part of that. Um, But we know that when we put pressure on, um, you know, transit property, that there is some and and there's also some seasonal movement, I think, into community. And we're seeing that now, given uh, given the summer and the the warmer uh, temperatures. So we're just adapting uh, to all of that as we see uh, the issues move around um, and the pressures move around. We move with it. And again, we're leading with compassion, as I've said before. Um, trying to connect people with services that would actually get them out of, you know, a life of addiction or petty crime or whatever, uh, but following up with enforcement. Uh, some folks don't want to be uh, receiving any services or cooperating, and in that case, we'll just deal with the behavior that we're that we're experiencing. Chief, it's unfortunate that we we, we deal with online crime and the uh, online scams, what have you. Uh, boy, they can be quite sophisticated. And I was reading yesterday, uh, one of my Facebook friends saying on Marketplace, taking. Uh, you know, taking for for some bucks when it comes to you know, picking up an item, I'll send you an e-transfer and didn't send the e-transfer. And I'm just wondering if you can give some clarity as to, to where the Calgary Police Service comes in when somebody gets scammed online. For example, this is just one example on a Facebook marketplace. I think maybe some citizens might think, well, the Calgary Police Service might not be able to help me. This is something that helped, happened online. Can you tell us about your reach when it comes to the online world and perhaps an online transaction gone wrong? 
Yeah, we, we do have reach there where it comes to that. I think a lot of uh, crimes that in the past would have been, you know, person to person or, or uh, involve individual transactions are now occurring online. And so we do have the ability to help out with uh, those types of crimes. But I'll tell you where the focus is really, Andy, is around, uh, you'll see a lot come out from the police service around trending when we see people being victimized like this online. So lots of uh, prevention information for folks about how to avoid being victimized. Because you can imagine that uh, if there's a high amounts of victimization for um, low dollar amounts, it doesn't change the impact on individuals, but we won't be able to have the capacity to intervene in all of those. So at the end of the day, we really do focus on trying to help people to uh, transact safely. We know lots of transactions uh, happen on online, whether it be Marketplace or Kijiji or, or other online platforms. And so we, we really want to get information out there about how people can do that safely and avoid, uh, avoid being victimized. Just before we let you go, Chief, I'll give you an opportunity. We've been putting it out to our listeners this morning. Of course, some are arriving at 8.57 precisely this morning. It's fine to say, you know, that it's summer solstice and that's the time on the clock. But for you, what is that sign of summer that makes you think, okay, we finally made it to the season, whether it's fresh cut grass, smell of a barbecue, what's on your list? Well, I love all those things. Uh, we, we, I heard you talking this morning about uh, the folks that live out on the patio and that's us. Uh, so we've been actually really fortunate because of the great spring that we've, we've had. Um, but for me, I actually think that Stampede is a big marker of uh, summer just in terms of, uh, of living in Calgary. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, we've had a great spring, but uh, I think just moving into summer, there's just something good about summer. Uh, the longer days, the ability to get out and do more things. And so I enjoy all of that. So, But for me, Stampede's probably the big marker. Yeah, for a lot of Calgarians as well, the same thought. Thank you so much, Chief. We appreciate your time. All right. Have a great day, Andy. You too. It is Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. According to a recent survey by ADP, the gender pay gap in Canadian workplaces appears to be gradually narrowing. With insight into the findings, we are joined by Heather Haslam, Vice President Marketing at ADP Canada. Good morning to you, Heather. Thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. Thank you for being here. Before we get into the survey, can you explain what ADP is to our listeners? Absolutely. So ADP is an HR leader in the Canadian market. We're a global company, but our focus is to ensure that Canadian employers have all of the tools that they need to support their uh, their team, their members, all the way from recruiting um, to retirement. Okay, so it sounds like a good fit, a survey like this for your company to, to work toward. You've got the survey results. What was your greatest takeaway on the Canadian workplace gender pay gap from this? So uh, very interesting. There's a little bit of glimmer of good news in that the the gender pay gap may be slowly closing. But what we're finding is that working Canadians who self-identify as women still report on average earning 21% less than workers who self-identify as men. It's down from 24% last year. So there's that glimmer of good news. But the issue is that, that there's still a, a very significant pay gap between uh, men and women working in Canada today. Okay, Heather, you, you, you got this data, different industries, you crossed these different industries to get this data. So you must have some you know, factors considering uh, these uh, different uh, compensation. We have these, what I'm getting at is you have these different industries, but you had to get the, the answers you need. So what were the factors? What did you uh, look at? So we looked at a, a number of things. One of the things that we that we tapped into in the survey was understanding what kind of impact it would have on employee retention. So by asking the question about, hey, 
if you understood that in your current job, a colleague of a different gender but equal standing was paid more, according to those in that the respondents in the survey, um, they 50% would actually leave that organization, which is quite significant. And what we're also finding is that the younger generation in the workforce are really voicing stronger positions. When we looked at generation, almost two-thirds of Gen Z and, and more than 50% of millennials pointed that they would consider leaving their role of salaries if there was inequalities across genders. All right. Over these different industries and sectors, did you find that some showed more significant reduction in gender pay gap or was it across the board? Um, we don't have um, a, a enough of a representative sample across all different industries. We did uh, look at both part-time working Canadians as well as full-time working Canadians, but we don't have data that really understands by industry or by vertical, if you will. All right. Did the survey, you know, identify the underlying causes or drivers behind this narrowing, you know, moving in the right direction, but do we know exactly why? Um, I mean, it's a, that's, a, that's a history question, Andrew, <laughs> um, in terms of the, the why behind it. What we realized is um, a couple of good things out of the data that um, Canadians actually trust their organizations to act on inequalities. Uh, what we found was three quarters of working Canadians actually do believe that pay equity is a priority for their organization, which is great, and it's 72% for women. So that's reassuring. What we understand, though, is that while pay equity and equal access to higher paid jobs for all genders kind of remain an ongoing conversation and need to within the Canadian workforce, the insights really point to the role that um, equal pay could have on employee retention, which is really a, a big issue for um, Canadian employers at this point. So you really need to build this culture of inequality and transparency, and we cannot um, you know, be ignoring this, right? So as more working Canadians are becoming inclined to reconsider their employment based on discrepancies um, amongst other inequalities, prioritizing pay equity and embracing equal pay will give organizations this edge on hiring and retaining the best talent. Very interesting uh, as far as those uh, results from your survey. Uh, Heather, appreciate that and a, a timely conversation as we move further down the road. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, you having us, and I look forward to um, all employers across Canada focusing on this to make sure that it, next year when we do this again, it's yeah. further reduced. And we'll look forward to that conversation in 12 months. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Heather Haslam, Vice President Marketing at ADP Canada. What progress, or has there been any measurable progress when it comes to the issues around safe drinking water in Canada's Indigenous communities? Joining us to discuss the issue is Melissa Mbarki, Policy Analyst and Outreach Coordinator, Indigenous Policy Program at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Good morning to you, Melissa. Good morning, Andrew. I want to get into this because, you know, safe drinking water in Indigenous communities continues to be an issue we need to address. And uh, unfortunately, it, this has seemed to have been in the conversation for years now. So have we made progress to address the issue by the federal government? We've made some progress and it, it's considered progress because these are, um, these are projects that have spanned years, if not decades. And so some communities have received clean water 
and others are still on the list. And the longest standing water advisory is the Nescatanga um, in Ontario. They've been on a water advisory for almost 30 years. And this needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. And what we see happening in our communities is that a crisis needs to happen first before anything is done. And that is very frustrating for many of us, for many of our families who live on reserves because they're rationing water. They don't have clean water. They're collecting rainwater. They're taking it from the river. This is how, like, it's 2023. Every First Nations community should have clean water today. It's it, it's crazy to me that this has not been addressed, that it is 2023. We should have the tech. So have you been told, do you have any indication on what's been holding up this progress of these projects? So what I've seen is that the money goes through the federal government first. They're the ones that decide how to address each community's uh, water issue. Once that's all done, so let's say they allotted $100,000 for a project. By the time that gets to the reserve, almost half of it is spent. And what should be happening is that reserves should be able to go to their own company and say, hey, can you come and look at our issue, give us an estimate, and let us know how long it's going to take to fix. We don't have that autonomy, and that's where it needs to change. We don't need the federal government taking years to make decisions for us. We should be able to call our, we should be able to call our own water company and say, hey, come and look at this issue. Let us know how long it's going to take to fix, but they don't allow us to make those types of decisions. And in the case of the one incident uh, you mentioned, 30 years, this is not party politics because it would have been under the banner of different different uh, politicians when you go back 30 years. Exactly. Like, it would have been under different political parties, but nobody wants to address the issue. Nobody's looking at the issue and saying, how can we change this internally? What do we need to do to speed up this process? And how can we be saving costs in this process? None of these questions are being asked right now and I think the federal government really needs to look at this and really look at how they're going to revamp how this whole process is going because I've lived under water advisories and these aren't quickly fixed. A simple filtration problem should take less than three months to go in and fix and hook up and uh, you know kind of look at the water treatment plant. It shouldn't take three years in our instance to change a water filter that is just uncalled for and they need to look at their internal process and they need to start figuring out where they can do better for first nations communities it is indeed national indigenous people's day and we are speaking uh, with michelle embarkey uh, melissa i'm sorry melissa embarkey policy analyst and outreach coordinator of indigenous policy program at the mcdonald laurier institute so since we have you on and it happens to be Indigenous Peoples Day. What are some of the most important issues facing our Indigenous community in your eyes as we move into 2023? When you look at reserves, it's definitely the infrastructure, it's the housing, it's the water, it's the lack of resources for elders, for our youth. Those are the biggest issues that we see. When you look at more urban areas like Calgary and Edmonton, you're looking at a homeless uh, problem. You're looking at an opioid crisis. You're looking at crime. There's so many issues that encompass us both on and off reserve. And these are issues that we need to start really pinpointing and saying, how can we help, especially with the homeless population? How can we 
help the homeless? How can we uh, build more affordable homes for people? What can we do as a city? And on the reserve, it's the infrastructure. We have four or five families living in one home, you know, and, and this was a big concern when COVID hit and you know it, it if one person got covid everybody got covid so it's 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 a health issue we need to start looking at at these issues and really starting to address them and come up with solutions for them all right and uh, while we have you melissa what progress or, or you view it as uh, progress has been made whatsoever in the 94 calls to action outlined by the truth and reconciliation commission have we moved the ball forward well, there's 94 calls to action, and depending on whose information you want to pull it from, organizations are saying five calls to action have been addressed, while others are saying 12 of the 94 have been addressed. That's too slow. We need to start really looking at these calls to action and saying, okay, in a year, what is what can we address is it 10 or 15 is it going to take us 10 years but a handful in the last five or so years is is not good enough that's not what reconciliation is when you're moving as slow as a turtle like we need to start speeding up some of these actions and we need to start you know putting boots on the ground and and start addressing some of these issues which you know one of them could be water and housing like, that's a major issue right now that we're dealing with on reserves, and we'd like to see items like this addressed sooner rather than later. All right. Uh, Melissa, I understand there's a, is there a webinar coming up next week that people can check out? Yeah, so we have a webinar coming up next week on Tuesday, and it's going to address the water issue that we're seeing. It's going to come from different perspectives. Uh, my perspective is living with a water issue and what that did to me and my family in terms of health. Um, Another panelist works directly with reserves and she's done a lot of construction. She's worked on water projects um, throughout Canada and she brings a perspective of what, what is the government lacking? What should they be doing differently? And the third panelist is actually pretty interesting. Um, He helped bring clean water to his community without the help of the federal government. So his story is quite interesting, and he's a residential school survivor. He brings a different perspective. So it's going to be very, very it's going to be an interesting webinar, and it's going to have a lot of different voices. And I think Canadians will really see what the issue is once we get our stories out there. All right. So if we want to take part in the webinar, Melissa, where, where do we go? Where can we find more info? The link is on the McDonald Laurier Institute, and uh, when you sign up, you can watch it live or you can watch it at a later date as well because they do post the webinars on YouTube. So even if you can't make it that day on, or Tuesday morning, um, it will be posted at a later date and it would be available uh, to view as well. All right, that's McDonaldLaurier.ca. Thank you so much, Melissa. We appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. That is Melissa Embarki, Policy Analyst and Outreach Coordinator, Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald-Laurier Institute.